Exodus chapter 35. Our text tonight is verses 1, 2, and 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Amen. So far, the reading and hearing of God's holy and inspired word, may he add his blessing to it. I'm sure none of you do things like this where for fun one day you go online and search literary dictionary and start looking at all the different terms that are used to describe the way people write books and the way the Bible was written and the way poetry is written and if you were to go and look up uh, different terms that are used when describing the plot of narrative texts, you would come across words like exposition and rising action and falling action and resolution. And some of you who may be in middle school or grade school are shaking your heads because you hear these words all the time. And some of you may be having flashbacks to all of the things that you've forgotten over the years. One of the words in the midst of all of those relating to the plot of narratives is called uh, the climax. The climax is the, the most dramatic point of the whole story. Now, when we arrive at Exodus chapter 35, we're really expecting anything but that. Because if you've read ahead or if you know what's coming, Exodus 35 through 40, these six chapters are almost a facsimile of chapters 24 through 31 with a couple of different changes. It's almost identical material. You can find graphs online that, that compare the text of earlier in Exodus to this part of Exodus we're entering into now. And it's, it's basically the same text, just duplicated. And so it can be a tendency in our own hearts as we come to Exodus 35 to sort of shrink back a little bit. I've read and listened to a lot of ministers on Exodus, and when you get into chapter 35, it's hard to find a man spend more than sometimes just one sermon on the next six chapters. Well, it just repeats a lot of the same information. It does repeat a lot of the same information, but here's, here's the truth. Chapters 35 through 40 are the climax of Exodus. This is where the most dramatic event of the whole thing takes place, as in these chapters that we have left. And, and it may seem unusual to say that, and, and I'll, I'll grant you that for a moment, that with all of the action that's come before, right, the, the plagues in Egypt... I mean, you can go back further than that. Moses in, in, in the raft and the water and getting saved in this miraculous way. And he's delivered and he, he goes out and he's in Egypt and uh, rather in the wilderness. And the Lord calls him through the burning bush. I mean, what a great chapter, right? Chapter 3. And then the ten plagues happen. They happen in Egypt and then they're delivered out. And, and the crossing of the Red Sea and the manna and the quail from heaven. And, and all of these amazing things the Lord has done. Surely one of these is the most dramatic part of the book. No, I, I posit to you tonight that the most dramatic part of this book are the next six chapters where the people build a tent. This is the climax of God's story of how he has come to his people and draws them to himself. 
Ligon Duncan says it simply like this. All of these adventures lead up to this. The people of God worshiping God and experiencing His presence. And if you think for a moment, remember that this is the goal, is it not? Isn't this what God has been doing the whole time? Isn't this where He's been leading them the whole time? Is bringing them to Himself. Not setting them free from slavery so that they might go and seek after their own things. He freed them from their sin and enslavement so that they might love and worship Him. It's the same thing that He has done for us in Christ now. He did for them in Christ. He has set us free from sin and made us, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, slaves to righteousness. He has freed us to Himself. And so this is the high point of the book. When, when all of it has come together, the Lord has delivered them out of Egypt. He's explained to them at length on the mountain how they will worship Him in the future. And now we finally arrive. We had that hiccup in chapter 32, which was much more than a hiccup. We had that, that breaking point in 32 that's been reconciled in 33 and 34. And now we finally come to 35. And the question is, will God do what He has said that He's going to do? Chapters 35 through 40 are, of course, without explaining it further, the conclusion to this whole book. They present to us how the tabernacle is completed and constructed and how there at the very end of 40, the Lord comes to inhabit this tent among his people. And there is indeed a lot of repetition from chapters 24 through 31. You know, we talk about climax. There's another literary tool that we need to be aware of, and that's that's a literary device called repetition. You know, we, we get bored with repetition. Well, we've, we've gone through all of this information before. We don't need to be told again about the tabernacle. But we can't, we can't just think about this as, as information. We have to ask this question, why is God repeating himself? Why is he going back to everything he's already said about the tabernacle being constructed and and now walking through all of those details again when they're actually happening? Why does God repeat himself? Alec Motier writes about this. He says, Bible repetitions underline Bible priorities. Important things get said twice. Think about uh, Jesus in the Gospels. Verily, verily, I say unto you. For us more modern readers, truly, truly, I say unto you. When Jesus says that, what have you been taught as you read your Bibles? You pay attention, right? At the very least, he was trying to tell his hearers in the moment that they should be paying attention. You say it twice, you listen double as much. Motier goes on and he says, in this case of repetition, in in 35 through 40, the repetition points to this important thing the awesome reality encapsulated in the tabernacle. That the Lord, the Holy One, the Redeemer, the Ruler of the world, the Sovereign God of grace and power actually intends to come and live among His people. Right, so we talked a lot about the tabernacle. Right, 24, 25, all the way through 31. These descriptions of how God was going to live among his people, how they were going to come to him in worship and praise and adoration, how they were going to depend upon him with all of their being for the rest of their lives and down through the generations, this description of this wonderful relationship that God was establishing with them. But it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't come to pass. They need to be reminded, right? And let's just say it. We need to be reminded, don't we? 
I hope that none of y'all are half as forgetful as I am about the true things about God, about how merciful He is, about how kind He is, about the extent to which He's gone to redeem us from sin and death. But we need to be reminded, and that's what He's doing. He's repeating Himself so that we will remember. And so instead of... um, where, where I probably could justify one more sermon on Exodus right now, and we could finish it. Some of you are sitting there with bated breath. We're going to do four, counting tonight. Four more. We're going to finish it before July. Four more sermons on Exodus. Tonight we've got three verses, which, yes, does mean that um, we're going to have some big chunks to deal with. We're going to, we're going to try to focus in on, on why God, why, why Moses as the author writes these exact words again. Why he repeats himself. We'll do verses 1 through 3 tonight. We're going to cover chapter 35 plus a little bit of 36 next week. Two weeks from now is the big one. We're going to cover 36 through 40, almost all of 40. And then we're going to come back and finish off 40 when the Lord comes and descends into the tabernacle. Let's let's get straight on this passage, though, as we begin to look at these last several chapters of Exodus. Do you remember before... The last time God commanded Israel related to the building of the tabernacle, which they're about to do, that was all pre-32. That was all before they sinned the great sin against God. Back then in, in 20, 24 through 31, all, all the instructions for building the tabernacle, all the, all the instructions for the, the recipes for the oil, and the, the incense and, and the men, Holiab and Bezalel, who were chosen to, to lead up the teams who were going to put this into practice. That was the last time we heard the Lord speak about these things was before that great sin. And if you even just want to flip back, you can see at the end of chapter 31 how the Lord ended all of this uh, description and instruction related to the tabernacle complex. He gets done describing what they're going to build. And in 31 verse 12, it says, The Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed The Lord spent all those chapters instructing Moses in the proper building of the tabernacle, and he finished almost awkwardly by saying, By the way, when you're working on my holy building, you shall not work on the Sabbath day. Don't forget about that that law that I gave you already. It's reported that when Calvin was ministering in Geneva, there was a three year period where he was asked to leave. He left. Preaching in the middle of Matthew somewhere. This didn't happen to you when you preached through Matthew, brother. Aren't we glad? He was asked to leave halfway through his Matthew series. 
And three years later, he came back and he walks up into the pulpit and he opens Matthew to the verse that he left off on and says, where were we? And he begins to preach. And that's what God is doing. You see, at the end of 31, he had told them all about the tabernacle complex. And he said, by the way, don't forget to keep the Lord's Day as you build this. And he comes here in 35, after all of the sin of the golden bull and the reconciliation, the renewal of the covenant and the making of new tablets. And he basically comes and says, now, where were we? And there's, there's so much significance in this. On the one hand, it shows God's immutability. Listen to this, Christian. Your sin does not change God. Their sin in 32 changed nothing about their Lord Redeemer. Nothing about Him changed. All of His intentions are still there to pursue them and lean in towards them and to continue in on what He established to begin with. And so this also shows His great mercy for His people. Your sin, beloved, when you belong to God, your sin does not turn Him away. It inclines Himself toward you in love and forgiveness. Now, now, it doesn't mean you can continue in sin, and we know this, right? The people returned. Moses returned. He pled that the Lord would return. And, and, and we see this in 35, that as the Lord comes back to where He left off, He's saying, okay, yes, you did a heinous thing, and you rebelled against Me, but I am a God of mercy and grace. Let's start again. Where were we? Beloved, God's mercy is always towards His children, disobedient though we may be. And aren't we grateful for that? You ever wonder, after your sin, you think, surely when I wake up tomorrow, the Lord will not receive me again. After what I said to so-and-so, after what I did in private, after the thoughts that I have thought, surely God will not receive me again. Beloved, His mercies are new every morning. And He will always receive us when we come to Him in faith believing, when we come to Him in Christ, when we trust that our Lord Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. You know, God has counted our sin to Christ's account and has, has, has reckoned our sin dead and gone so that when we come to God, He receives us as sons and daughters because that's what we are. God is so full of mercy. He will never turn away His own. Christ did not die so that you could somehow lose your salvation. Christ died for you, Christian. And God will never leave you. So, what is it that God has to say as He turns back to the people now where He left off? Look at verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. And verse 1 there, it, it doesn't only serve as a preface to our passage tonight, verses 1 through 3. It, it does in part. But it serves primarily as, as a preface and introduction to the whole rest of the book. These words of verse 1 be, become a refrain between now and the end of chapter 40. If, if you want, you can flip over just um, for examples. In chapter 39, verse 1, From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns they made 
finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. Look at 39 down to 21. And they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod, as the Lord had commanded Moses. You can jump down to chapter 40, verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. Almost at the very end in 32 of 40, when they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 1 of chapter 35, as one commentator has called it, is the general command to worship and serve under the authority of the Word of God. So what we will begin to see over these next few weeks is that as the people come and begin to build this, they will do everything according to the word that God has given them. That they will do it properly this time. It's this broad principle, we may even call it sort of a regulative principle of living. How is it that Christians are to be in the world? That we do all that God has commanded. That we are not, as God's people permitted, to ever live for ourselves. You know, it doesn't seem like it at first when we say something like that, but this flies in the face of everything the world preaches. Everything in the world will tell you that you should live for you and do what's right for you and seek your best and get yours. God has redeemed us. We are not our own. We are His. We belong to Him. Not just because He made us, but also because He saved us. We can go all sorts of places in the Scriptures and find this truth all over. Psalm 24, verse 1. Most of us have it memorized. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Not just what He's made, everybody whom He has made. All of us belong to Him because we are His creatures. You can, you can jump forward to the New Testament. Think about Paul as a believer. Thinking, uh, think about how he always introduced himself. It's the word doulos, slave, translated servant in most cases. A servant of God. A servant according to the will of God. A slave of God. It, it sort of comes out more fully in Romans chapter 6, verse 18, when Paul writes about all of us as believers, declaring that we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. We are not our own. We have no right to live as we see fit. We belong to God. He has made us and saved us. And that is what Moses is telling the people in verse 1. We live by the Word of God. Not by our own whims or our own inclinations. Now, isn't that what happened in chapter 32? Isn't that what's in the back of their mind when Moses comes back to speak for God again? Aren't they thinking... Is God going to receive us? And they see that God is going to receive them, but Moses reminds them, listen, you will do all that God has commanded you to do and nothing else. You will not live according to your own designs. You will not think to yourself, oh, I wonder when Moses will return. Let's create a golden bowl and we'll worship God that way. No, that's not what God has commanded. That is, that is a great sin against our God. We, we don't behave like 
Exodus 32 Christians. What does he say there in 35.1? These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. And so also, believer, you, you have been set free from sin. And you are a slave of righteousness. You know, we live... We live always toward God. Always under His watching eye. At the same time, we always live free of shame because He has redeemed us and separated us from our sin. We're not defined by our remaining corruption. We are defined as Christ followers. We are Christians. We live before Him and we seek to please Him. Flip over to uh, Romans chapter 8. If you have your... I'm not going to say if you have your Bibles. You better have your Bibles. Flip over to Romans chapter 8 if you would like to look at this. Don't worry, I'll read it too. Paul writes fascinating things. Romans 8 verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is describing us before we came to know the Lord. Before He drew us to Himself, we were in the flesh. We were in sin. We cannot please God. Verse 9, You, however, speaking to believers, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Consider this, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We are to live as God's people. And we are not to fear. We're not to shrink away. There is no shame, for our sin has been paid. It has been erased and separated from us. We have been empowered by that same Spirit who raised Christ from the grave. He lives in us, and He gives life to our mortal bodies so that we may walk with God and seek to please Him. This is the general command to worship and and serve under the authority of the Word of God. And this general command that, that Moses gives of the people leads into one of the supreme commands that's to govern all of their work as they begin to establish the tabernacle, and it is the observation of the Sabbath. Look at verse 2. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Just imagine there for a minute, they've been ta- they're about to be tasked, they've been tasked, they're about to actually put it to, to practice, with building the tabernacle. I mean, what better work to do on the Lord's day than the Lord's work, right? There's going to be a tendency in them that even on the Sabbath day, they should continue to work and labor and construct and build this tent and the complex that God has designed for them, right? At the very least, you can imagine, maybe, that they'll observe some kind of partial Sabbath, right? Well, they go to worship in the morning and then they do whatever they want in the afternoon, which may, in fact, include some of this holy work towards the tabernacle. And so, so at first, it really should strike us as a bit odd that the Lord would forbid them from, 
from working on the tabernacle on the Sabbath day. That's exactly what it does. It, it, it structured it at the end of 31, and it's reminded here in 35 that the Sabbath command is to structure their response to all the work the Lord is requiring of them. Let's just make a couple of comments on, on verse the end of verse 2 and, and all of verse 3, and then we're going to pull out a bigger principle. A lot of people have trouble with the end of verse 2. Whoever does any work on it, that is on the Sabbath day, shall be put to death. Ligon Duncan has the best I've ever heard on this. He says, isn't it interesting that God was willing to say to the Israelites, listen, if you decide to work 24-7, I will give you rest. That is, if you decide to work all the time, I will give you rest. I'll kill you. Ligon records God's thoughts. You're going to get rest one way or another. You're either going to rest on my day or I'm going to put you to death. And Ligon's comment on that is this. Isn't it amazing how serious God is about your rest? Isn't it amazing? He says, if you won't, I'm just going to kill you. Because let's be honest, life's not worth living if you don't observe this pattern that I've established. Verse 3, you shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. This shows that the principle of Sabbath applies not just to public work, right, of working on the tabernacle, but it actually, it follows you home. You, you shouldn't start a fire on the Lord's, you know. Now, they were still living on manna and quail, so they weren't having to, to cook anything. They weren't having to gather anything on the Lord's day, on, on the Sabbath day. Um, but it's still the principle that's applied there. Listen, this, this is still even with you at home. And, and here, here we go. Here's the broad principle that Moses is seeking to show them and that the Lord seeks to show us. The Lord's day, if we can translate it into the New Testament, the Lord's day matters to the Lord. Remember what we've said about repetition? This is like the fourth time that he's dealt with it in Exodus alone. Sabbath practice, the fourth commandment. The Lord's day matters to the Lord. He is concerned for your rest. We often think about the Lord's day sort of, I kind of squirm. You know, I just don't know. I've got so much I need to do. The Lord cares about your rest, beloved. He wants you to rest. He wants you to stop. And He wants you to breathe and remember that He's got it. Matthew Henry says, The honor of the Sabbath was above that of the sanctuary, more ancient and more lasting. Did you, did you think of this? That, that they're building the tabernacle where God will dwell among His people. And God says, but the Sabbath is more important. Don't work even on the tabernacle on my day of rest. Ligon again says it's a beautiful thing. God is so committed to their need for rest and their need for spiritual communion and resting in Him on His day that He says, even my tabernacle, the place which visibly represents my presence on earth, even it is second. It takes a second place to the importance of your observing the Sabbath. The Lord's day matters to the Lord. That's what Moses is showing us that it is significant and important in the life of his people. You know, I begin to wonder, Tim, if Dr. Strain gets some kind of royalty if we reference him twice in one Sunday. I could probably pull three times out if I tried, but we're not going to tonight. Dr. Strain says two things about why God repeats this command. Yes, the Lord's day matters to the Lord, but why in particular? And he has two observations that are helpful. One, because God is rich in mercy and cares for his people. 
Do you know that God is concerned for you and for your body and for your soul and for your mind that you get rest? That you not kill yourself by working to death? Strain says, how kind and what a precious gift that God says to us in our frenzied 24-7 lives. Rest. Rest. Secondly, Dr. Strain says, God wants to make sure that we do more than just work for Him. He wants to make sure that we have fellowship with Him. It might, maybe not, with with the exception of the fact that the Lord specifically prohibits it, maybe not the worst thing to do on a Sabbath to work at the church. Maybe not the most horrible thing in the world. But the Lord wants us to stop even that kind of work so that we might fellowship with Him, so that we might know Him through the ordinances of His worship, so that we might, we might cling to Him in the ways that He has established for us, so that we might be free from, from worldly cares, as, as godly and religious as they may be, so that we may focus on the Lord as He has revealed Himself to us in, in our Lord Jesus. Strain asks this question, Has your labor in your Master's praise become a substitute in your life for actually meeting Him for the nourishment of your own soul? And are we too busy about the things of God to actually get to know God, to actually seek after Him and cling to Him? The Sabbath preaches Christ. It preached Christ to them then, and it preaches Christ to us now. And I'll say this, even before His resurrection, right? That, that's why we call it the Lord's Day, is because Christ rose from the grave on the Lord's Day. But even before the resurrection, the Sabbath is all about Jesus. Because it points us to outside of ourselves. It, it tells us to stop and remember that we need something beyond ourselves in order to be right with God. I pulled this quote from our sermons on the fourth commandment from Alec Motier again. He says, and let me preface this by saying, you know, we, we do approach the Lord's Day often but with this sort of trepidation of all that's required of us. I don't know if I can stop thinking about my worldly employments on the Lord's Day. Yeah, I, I don't know if I can either. It's daunting. Mathieu says, when the Lord's people cannot rise to his requirements, he does not lower the standard, but rather lifts up his people. He says, the law being written on their heart is truth of regeneration. The inner true reality of the Christian believer is that our new nature has been fashioned for obedience. This is what the Sabbath preaches, that in yourself you fail to live up to God's requirement. Of course you can't meet it. Of course you can't live up to what God has called us to in His law. But in Christ, Christian, you have all righteousness and have been, by the Holy Spirit, fashioned for obedience. So do not be afraid. Rather, find comfort that the Sabbath reminds us of Jesus. Richard Baxter writes, What fitter day to ascend to heaven than that on which He arose from earth and fully triumphed over death and hell. Use your Sabbaths as steps to glory till you have passed them all and are there arrived. Isn't this passage such a kind reminder to us 
of what the Lord wants from us. He wants us to rest in Him. He wants us to remember that we can't save ourselves and that we're so dependent, not so dependent, entirely, utterly, wholly dependent upon Him for everything. Right? See God's mercy as He keeps them moving in what He originally planned. See, see His faithfulness in all He does and remember that that this faithful God, this merciful God is, is our God today. And in Christ, we have so much more a sight of his mercy and faithfulness than ever Moses had. The very one who beheld the face of God or the back of God. Be pleased to trust in Christ. Be glad at what he has done for us in the gospel. And may God help us. Amen. Oh, Father, please, for the sake of your Son, send the Holy Spirit now to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. Teach us what it is to live a whole life before you. Teach us what it is to punctuate our weeks with the Sabbath and, and, and step them to glory. We yearn for that day when sin will be no more. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.